In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, 
I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And now our reading from the New Testament is from Colossians chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, may your Lord live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, this morning we begin an exciting new nine-part series on nothing less than the entire scriptures, the whole Bible. God's mega story. Now, the Christian life is not about the Bible, but it is about what the Bible is about. And this series is an invitation to enter into the world of the Bible, to engage with that, the reality of God's big story. The Bible isn't actually one book, it's a collection of books. You might say it's a small library of ancient writings, the first of which was written sometime at the end of the first, second millennium BC, that's over a thousand BC, and the last one at the end of the first century AD, some 90 or so, AD. Now that's a thousand years, at least, in, in composition. And it contains a diverse array of genres, including ancient Near Eastern creation stories, Bronze Age law codes, historical narratives, Hebrew poetry, wisdom literature, prophecy, Greco-Roman biography, ancient Greek historiography, letters and an apocalypse. <coughs> it's had, had a profound impact on history, in history. Literary critic Northrop Fry once called the Bible, quote, this huge, sprawling, tactless book, which he said, sits there inscrutably in the middle of our cultural heritage, 
frustrating all our efforts to walk around it. Well, we're not going to try to walk around it, but inside it. Immerse ourselves in its world, and in particular, its story. Although there's much more than this in the Bible, the Bible is at its heart a story, a mega story um, of God and everything else. And in our series, we're going to stop at nine significant waypoints in that story. Today we start at the beginning, beginning of the Bible, but also at the beginning of the great biblical story and of our story. Not just the beginning, but the foundation on which all else is built. The very opening sentence, Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Today, in the beginning, creation. The great truth about God and the great truth about all that is. That God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Now this truth is expressed in various ways in scripture, but none better than the one we heard in our first reading from Genesis. It may be familiar to us, and yet every time I hear it, I I move by it. Not for nothing did the crew of Apollo 8 read this very text as they orbited the moon for the first time and humans saw for the first time the awe-inspiring sight of the planet Earth rising above the moonscape. William Anders, the lunar module part, it began like this, and I quote, for people on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 have a message we'd like to send you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And so they went on, each crew member reading apart, until finally Frank Borman, the commander of Apollo 8, ended at verse 10. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Well, we heard it this morning. The scene opens with dark, watery chaos. Then in a series of days, God brings order and function. The first is time itself, day and night. Then on day two, God makes a vault that separates the waters above and below. Space for the atmosphere and weather. Day three, the waters are gathered together and the dry land appears. Space for agriculture and vegetation. Then the next three days fills in the time and space of the first three days. Day four, corresponding to day one, lights in the vault to give order to time. Day five, corresponding to day two, Um, The atmosphere and the waters of the sea are filled with living creatures. Day six, corresponding to day three, the dry land is filled with its living creatures. And especially one particular creature of profound significance, mankind, as the NRV puts it. The Hebrew word actually is literally the word Adam. Adam, the, the human. That's what 
Adam means in Hebrew, the human. And the human is the representation of God on the earth. As verse 27 puts it more literally, God created the human, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then they, notice the shift from him to they, they are given dominion over the other living creatures. Now, that's not the end of it. There is a seventh day without parallel in any of the other days. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. Now, what does that mean? We mustn't take this to think that God somehow has a time off, a bit of long service leave. That's not what it's meant at all. Scholars have noted how the language of a God resting in the ancient Near East is almost always about the God reigning in his temple where he dwells. And you see this in scripture, the language of Psalm 132, verse 12 and 13 and 14. 132, verse 12 and 14. It's speaking here about Jerusalem. Quote, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. Quote, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. This is my resting place. Here I will sit enthroned. And increasingly scholars are coming to realise that the seven days in Genesis 1 echo the, the seven-day inauguration of a temple. And that this narrative culturally encodes the theological message that all creation is God's temple. The climax of the creation story, therefore, is God resting and reigning in his creation temple. Now, you may have noticed that the picture of the universe in Genesis 1 is very different from that of our contemporary scientific point of view. And the reason is that the account is expressed entirely in the cosmology of the ancient Near East. Here, God is communicating to his original audience, and I do emphasize this is God's word as well as a human word, in terms that they understand. That's why, for example, the sky is portrayed as a solid vault, solid dome, with the waters above it. That's why the sun and moon are portrayed as lights in the dome. That's why when the waters are removed, there's one big landmass that appears, and so on. They're all descriptions of the world as the ancient Israelites, and their neighbours for that matter, understood it to be. I've become convinced that what Old Testament scholar and professor at Wheaton College, John H. Walton, writes is correct. This is the second of my quotes, by the way, on page two. You may want to turn to it because there are a few more coming. Walton said this, I quote, Throughout the entire Bible, there is not a single instance in which God revealed to Israel a science beyond their own culture. Not a single instance, a science beyond their own culture. He goes on, no passage offers a scientific perspective that was not common in the old world science of antiquity. This means that here in Genesis 1 and elsewhere in the Bible, God is content for the Israelites to retain their ancient Near East cosmic geography. 
because his purpose was not to reveal to them how they were to think about the shape of the cosmos, but something far more important, that he is the creator of all that is, that all the world is his creation, his temple. This is the great and deeply important truth of the beginning of the mega story. This is indeed the beginning, a great and deeply important truth about God, and also a great and deeply important truth about everything else that's not God, which when you think about it, covers it all. Let's start by exploring this great and deeply important truth about God, then I'll come later much more briefly to everything else. The great truth is that God is the creator of heaven and earth. Three things. One, this is about God's identity. God's identity. There are a number of ways uh, to identify the real God. One of the most important is to identify him as the maker of heaven and earth. That's what I mean when I say God. I mean the maker of heaven and earth. And this is especially crucial when there are alternatives on offer, as there were for most of the biblical period. So, for example, in Acts 17, when Paul is in Athens and sees a plethora of shrines to countless gods, he announces the real God as, quote, the God who made the world and everything in it. Just earlier in chapter 14 of Acts, um, when some excited local villagers took Paul and Barnabas to be two of the Greek gods come to earth, it was with these words, uh, that with some difficulty, uh, they stopped the locals from offering sacrifices to them. I quote from Acts 14, verse 15. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in it. The living God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything, everything in it, that's the real God. That's the one we're talking about. The rest are worthless things. That's God's identity. Secondly, God's being. Now, because God is the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it, in them, it means he alone is uncreated. He alone is transcendent. He alone is God and there is none other. Because, if I can quote Romans 11.36, from him and through him and for him are all things. From him and through him and for him are all things. Now this is very different from the deities, so-called deities of Israel's neighbours in the Old Testament and the pagan society of the New Testament world. They believed in an overarching cosmic order with the gods, though, though immortals, not, not, not mortals like humans, immortals, as part of that overarching cosmic order. But the God of the scriptures, the God of the Bible, is the creator and sustainer of the cosmic order, not part of it. This is a very important truth. And even today, you hear people talking of God as though he was simply a very big being in the universe. Why, this very week, I heard an ABC personality rather chirpily refer to God about 
talking about how many people believe in God in some survey they've done, as, quote, the guy in the sky. This problem is not just affecting theological lightweights like Annabelle Crabb. Some years ago, I even had a, stood up to one of my fellow bishops who declared at a conference, I quote, that God is the only being in the universe for whom seeking his own glory is not pride. I said to him afterwards, what you said is not true. He looked puzzled at me. Uh, not an uncommon reaction to almost anything I said back in those days. I said to him, God is not a being in the universe at all. He's not a being in the universe. He is the creator and sustainer of all that is. Do you get the point? My third quote from somewhat profound but not always easy to read theologian David Mentley Hart says this very well. I quote, he says, the most pervasive error one encounters in contemporary arguments about belief in God, especially but not exclusively on the atheist side, is the habit of conceiving of God as simply some very large object or agency within the universe, or perhaps alongside the universe, a being among other beings, who exists from others in magnitude, power and duration. Instead, beliefs regarding God concern the source and ground and end of all reality, the unity and existence of every particular thing and of the totality of all things, the ground and possibility of anything at all. Can you get your head around that? The source and ground, and, and by end he means purpose, goal. The source, to talk about God is to talk about the source and ground and goal of all reality. Or he says the unity and existence of every particular thing and the totality of all things. In fact, to talk about God is to talk about the ground of the possibility of there being anything at all. Or as Paul put it slightly more simply, from him and through him and for him are all things. And by the way, by all things, we mean all things. The physical universe in its mind-blowing immensity, but also what other universes there may be. Do we know about it? Don't know about it. And not just physical things, but spiritual things. Any spiritual beings that exist, angels, demons, you name it, powers, authorities, whatever it is, all included in all things, the lot. All things are from him, all things are through him, all things are for him. God's being, which leads to my last point under talking about God, about God's lordship and the gospel. That God is the creator and sustainer of all things, by which I mean every moment he upholds all that exists in existence, is the basis of his claim over us and over the world, his lordship claim. And it's also the basis of the good news of the gospel of salvation. You see, God is not an alien intruder or outsider who can only use his sheer power to dominate us. As American theologian Langdon Guilty put it some years ago, my fourth quote, 
in the culminating points of biblical thought, the God who saves is understood to be the same as he who created all things. No conjunction of ideas is more important for biblical faith than this continual affirmation that God is not only redeemer, but creator as well. Then later on he wrote, the good news of the gospel is not just that we are judged and loved. It's rather that he who is the maker of the ends of the earth and therefore he, he whom on whom we are totally dependent judges and loves us. In this way, the idea of creation gives meaning and significance to all else in the Christian faith. The idea of creation gives meaning and significance to all else in the Christian faith. Think on that for a moment. Now, there's much more we could say about this great and deeply important truth about God, but let's turn our mind to everything else. The creation made and sustained by God. Everything else, just look around you. The people, in this case, in my case, the stones, perhaps your case, it's the wall. The wood, the floor, the air, whatever you can see, whatever you can experience. All utterly dependent on God, the creator, who is hidden from us and yet upholding everything with his word of power. It's all being upheld by God at this very moment. This is the great and deeply important truth about everything else, the wonder, I call the wonder of created being. And so I encourage you to stop and see the wonder of existence for a minute. It's all dependent. It's real, it's not illusion. It's even good, but it's not God. It's real, it's dependent, it's good, and yet it's not God. God gives existence to that which is not God. And that's okay. Being a creature is okay. In fact, get used to it. Because that's all you'll ever will be. Even after the resurrection of the dead and the fulfillment of all things. And the wonder of creation is that this universe, this world, the existence, it's, the things are here, is not just a brute fact, just one of those absurd things that just is there. No, it's a gift. Existence is a gift. Ultimately a gift of divine love. Existence is a gift, ultimately, of divine love. That is why there is something rather than nothing at all. This doctrine of creation throws into sharp relief the reality of human sin. At its heart... Human sin is a perversion of the truth, the truth about creation. So in Romans 1, where the Apostle Paul describes what is fundamentally wrong in his society around him, he really spoke of all societies, actually. The disgraceful sexual misconduct of the Greco-Roman world was the result, he writes, of God giving them over to their shameful desires because because I've done it again here we are because quote Romans 2 verse 1 verse 25 
They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. That's the essence of sin. It's to live in the lie about God and serve creatures than God. There's something deeply weird, actually, when you think about it, about, about sin, even though it may be as common as anything. It's deeply weird because C.S. Lewis, in my last quote, you'd be pleased to hear, wrote this in his typical arresting way. Quote, A creature revolting against a creator is revolting against the source of his own powers, including even his power to revolt. It is like the scent of a flower trying to destroy the flower. End of quote. And this leads, I think, to a moment of personal reflection. As you ask yourself, have I truly lived out the truth of God? Or have I become part of the lie? Have I turned from worshipping the creature who is the creator who is blessed forever to serving created things? That's the constant temptation, the target of our of our broken humanity. Do I think too little of God? Do I understand? Now, I know we've talked some high theology today, but also these are truths about our own hearts as we face the issue of sin and rebellion. And I can say we're going to see a fair bit of sin and rebellion as we make our way through God's bigger story in the coming weeks. Which leads me to a last important truth, just the last moment about creation that I've got time for this morning. It's this. Creation is not just the setting and backdrop for God's mega story in Scripture. It's not just, it is that, it is, of course it is that. It's the stage on which the drama will take place. But it's not just that. Creation is also part of the story. Now, I can only hint at it at this early stage, but one of the most astounding claims of the New Testament is that Jesus of Nazareth, a man they knew not 10, 20 years before the New Testament was written, is not only to be identified with God in some way, the Son of God, but that he is at the centre of all existence. The centre of all existence. And that, in fact, he is at the heart of the future of all existence. Creation was through him and for him. And you find this in Colossians 1, verse 15 and 16. I quote, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, meaning here, by the way, preeminent. Verse 16, For in him, wait, wait, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Think of that as we close. Through him and for him, all things. That is through Christ and for Christ, through the Son and for the Son. 
What this is saying is that it is in the Son himself, as he glorifies his Father in his triumph, that all creation will itself come to its fulfilment. The story of existence will at its deepest level be the story of Christ. Now, that's yet to come, both in reality and also in our series. Let's pray. I'm going to pray using the, some words from Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his host. Praise him sun and moon. Praise him all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He fixed their bounds which cannot be passed. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. Through Jesus Christ our Lord.